This is episode 189 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Public School District Financing. This is the third in our series about education and teachers. Hey, everybody. It seems like this is probably a good time to talk to you a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes here at Dear Discreet Guide. So it's been almost two years since we started the podcast, and we're almost at episode 200. So with 10 or 15 episodes left, whatever we have in the rest of this year, is the point at which we're going to change things a bit. And we'll still do books and movies and talk about people's life's work, but we will step away from it being quite an advice show about work and sort of both broaden the topics and also narrow them at the same time. And I'd love to tell you what the new name of the show is, but we haven't decided. And this is where I could use your help. I'd love to have your suggestions for what the name of the show should be. So it'll be pretty similar to what we've been doing over the past two years, minus the kind of uh, work advice or career advice uh, that we folded in, particularly in that first year. So we'll still be talking about learning and work, uh, but not quite so much advice. So if you have uh, some suggestions for me, I'd love to hear them. And you know, the other thing is, I get asked most often by my guests, what's your audience like? And I have to tell them, I don't really know. I know who a few of you are, but I can tell that there's a big listening audience out there that I have no clue who you are. So if you have time and would like to help me out, drop me a line. Let me know who you are, what you're interested in, your suggestion for the new name of the show, and really anything else you'd like for us to know. There are all kinds of different ways you can reach me. I'm all over LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and also through the website, A Discreet Guide. So yeah, please reach out and let us know. And of course, any support you can give to the show is also so appreciated, whether it's a review or if you can follow the show or just give us a nice rating. All of those things will really help us in the new year, grow the audience, and also uh, provide a show that, that you really like and that you really enjoy. So not a whole lot of specifics today. I wish I had more for you, but just be aware we're planning on changing the name once we turn over into 2021, Uh, but a lot of things will stay the same and would really like to keep you as a listener and know more about you. Thanks a lot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this.
I am really delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Larry Pikus is with us. Hi, Larry. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Good to be here. I'll introduce you. Larry O. Pikus is the Richard T. Cooper and Mary Catherine Cooper Chair in Public School Administration, Professor of Education Finance and Policy, and Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Affairs at the USC Rossier School of Education. His current research interests focus on adequacy and equity in school finance, as well as efficiency and productivity in the provision of educational programs for pre-K through 12 school children. PICUS is past president of the Association for Education Finance and Policy and was the president of EdSource, a California education policy analysis and research organization. And I've been on their website recently and lots of very interesting information there. Along with Alan Auden, Pikus is the co-developer of the Evidence-Based Model of School Finance Adequacy, one of the two most widely used approaches for determining how much funding is needed for schools to have the resources needed to help all children meet state performance standards. Pikus is co-author, again with Alan Auden, of School Finance, a Policy Perspective, the leading textbook in school finance. Pikus's other books include In Search of More Productive Schools and Developing Community Empowered Schools and Principles of School Business Administration, all music to our ears through our topic today. He's published numerous articles in professional journals and consults extensively on school finance issues. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today where we get to talk about funding schools, which is certainly an important topic in our series about education and teaching. Thank you, Larry, for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Can you start us off with some basics about school financing in California? And I just want to get some things straight here, whether I have them correct or wrong. Do property taxes from a particular school district stay in that district, or is there some kind of equalization that happens at the state level? And are there counties or regions where there are exceptions to that? Okay, thanks, Jennifer. That's that's a really good question. I, I think the best way to start is a short background on California finance, but the short answer to your question is, Generally speaking, property taxes stay in the district or certainly in the county in which they're levied. Uh, And that's partly because of the way California chooses to fund its schools. Um, All states fund schools with three very basic forms of money, local resources, state resources, and then federal money. Uh, Federal money represents, mm, on average, about 10% of what schools uh, receive, and it varies a little bit based on the characteristics of the students in the school district. Okay. In most states, districts levy property taxes, and then state resources are used to compensate for differences in abilities to raise property taxes. So districts have generally equal ability to raise roughly the same amount of money with the same tax effort. The ability of states to do that varies across the 50 states, and the relative share of property taxes versus uh, state resources, which typically are sales taxes and income taxes, mm-hmm. are vastly different in, in each of the 50 states. So, so the percentage from each source is different. California, 
every state will tell you they're unique and every school finance system is unique within a basic formula like that. In California, the two things that drive how much money a school district receives these days are the local control funding formula and Proposition 13. So let's start with the property tax question, which is around Proposition 13. Hmm. Proposition 13 passed in 1978, and it's a constitutional amendment. And for everybody who owns property in in California, you know that what it does is it limits your property taxes to 1% of assessed value. Mm -hmm. It then also says that assessed value is defined as what that assessed value was the year before Proposition 13 passed. And then it's reassessed at market value uh, when the property is sold. In addition, property can values can be assessed value can be increased by no more than two percent a year. So those property taxes are, are then collected by counties. But since 1978, when the legislature enacted a response because Prop 13 dramatically cut property taxes, mm-hmm. the formula that is used to distribute those property taxes is determined by the legislature. Okay. So every county levies property taxes. Every piece of properties, tax collections are then allocated to the districts in which that that piece of property is located. So Mm -hmm. when I get my property tax bill, a share of that 1% goes to the LA Unified School District because I live in Los Angeles. A share goes to the county, to the city, and on. Then the state actually determines how much money a school district should receive for, for general purpose revenues. Actually, the state decides how much money a school district is, should have for each pupil through something called the local control funding formula. Oh, gotcha. And it sets an amount of money per student. There are a variety of amounts that I think are just complications for this conversation. Okay. The school, district, the school district receives a certain amount of money per pupil, and it depends on, on, on the, the type of school district. We have K-12 districts high school districts and elementary districts. And and so that affects how much that the district receives. They're all roughly the same. Um, And within those categories, the amounts are are generally quite close together. In addition to that flat amount of money per pupil, the district gets additional money based on the the characteristics of the students. So students who um, are English language learners, students from low-income homes, and students who are foster children generate additional resources. And each student who has one or more of those characteristics generates approximately 20% more than the base amount per pupil. And when the total count of those students exceeds 55%, each additional student, instead of generating 20%, generates 50% more. So for example, in Los Angeles Unified, where a very high percentage of the students uh, are are low-income children, they get so much money for each of the, depending on what, how you treat charter schools and things, but let's call it uh, 500,000 children. Each of them receive this base amount and maybe 75 or 80% more receive either the, 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 the receive one of, you know, one of the two additional uh, grants to bring a total amount of money that the school district receives. The state applies the property taxes that were collected to the school di- by the school district or by the county where the school district is, and then makes up the difference in its simplest form. Okay. And of course, the state's ability to make up that difference and what those numbers are is also a function of something called Proposition 98, which controls the share of the state budget that goes to K through 14 education. So the state's required to provide a minimum and in times when the economy is bad, that minimum can shrink, but there are some protections to keep it from shrinking 
too quickly and, and smooths it out over time. It's, 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 there's tests that decide how those amounts work. So, so in its simplest form, and this is called a foundation formula for anybody who studied school finance, that is someone who's chosen to read my book and stayed awake through it, um, <laughs> which I, I doubt would be most of the people listening to this. There's an amount of money that the district gets, whatever it raises with property taxes at key, it has, and then the state makes up the difference. There are then a group of school districts who, for one reason or another today, raise more money than the local control funding formula would allocate to them. And they get to keep that money. I don't know the exact number. It varies from year to year. The majority of those districts come fairly close. That is, their property taxes don't exceed their allocation by very much. And then there's a group of, 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 of districts where, where they just raise substantially more money. They're called basic aid districts, and they keep that money. Uh, in some states, that money would be taken back and redistributed to other school districts. That does not happen in California. So the short answer to the question you asked is, yes, school districts keep the property taxes that they raise. There are some few technical things that happen around that, but they're really unimportant. That's that's basically what happens. Um, I think that answered your question. Yeah, it really does. That's so helpful. Thank you for laying it out that way. So let me back up a couple of steps just so we have some examples here. So in San Diego, where I live, we have certain school districts where the property tax raised is going to be fairly small compared to other districts in the richer neighborhoods where you know property taxes are very high. So leaving out the basic aid there for a moment, this ability to raise more money, is it fair to say that overall the school districts in the poorer neighborhoods are going to get, at the end of the day, the same amount of money as the rich neighborhoods do per student? Yes. Okay. And in fact, depending on the characteristics of the students, in some instances, the now remember, one of the questions is, is how we measure rich and poor. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, most people who are listening to this would think of rich and poor based on income. And, you know, rich people live in some parts of town. People who aren't as rich live in other parts of town, perhaps. And, and that, that generally works. Really, what we're talking about here is the value of property mm-hmm. per pupil. So you add up all the assessed value of the property and divide that by the number of pupils. And then you apply a tax rate. So so perhaps the best example, um, and I'm going to move, if it's okay, I'm going to move to LA County only Mm -hmm. because I can give a better example and I don't want to mess it up with with, uh, school districts in in San Diego. Uh Yeah, Um, sure. But but, but if you take two school districts to compare, um, the Compton Unified School District and the Beverly Hills Unified School District, Mm -hmm. the property value per pupil in Compton is lower than the property value per pupil in Beverly Hills. And so when the property taxes are levied, if let's just assume for simplicity that both of those districts are entitled through the local control funding formula to $10,000 per pupil when the whole formula works its way through. Yep. Beverly Hills may raise all or most of that $10,000 through property taxes and get a very small check from the state. Compton may raise substantially less than that, say maybe $2,000, $3,000, and then the state would make up the difference to get to $10,000. But both would have the same $10,000. Now, Compton likely has more low-income ch- children from low-income families. Um, the district has, is heavily Latinx these days, so there may be more children who are English language learners. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Compton may actually receive 
more money per pupil through local control funding formula because of the characteristics of the children in the district. Yep, that makes perfect sense. And now let's layer on what you called basic aid, which I'm sorry, I've never heard of before. And is that the, so go ahead, just explain how that would work in your Compton-Beverly Hills example. In, in the situation, and I don't know if it's the case or not this year, suppose Beverly Hills formula gener- is, generates at $10,000 per student, but when the property taxes are levied, it generates $11,000 per student in property taxes. Then the state check would be zero, but that $1,000 per pupil would also stay in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So thank you very much for that uh, primer on school finance. And then I want to throw a curveball in here. I spend a lot of time up in Mammoth Lakes, which is in the Eastern Sierra, and it's a small community surrounded by many, many acres of federal land. So when we were living up there and my children were going to those schools, I realized that they were getting, the schools, the school district was getting federal money, and I was calling it quote-unquote replacement monies, there's probably a, a better appropriate term for that, because it was to compensate the district for the fact that they wouldn't be able to levy property tax on land that is federal land and has no homes on it. And they actually turned out to have more money per student in that calculation than our district in San Diego did. And and they also had very good schools. So is it common to have these other little twists, these other little curveballs, or is that really an outlier? I, I don't know the specifics of, of the Mammoth School District. It's a it's a relatively uncommon thing. The, the aid itself is called federal impact aid. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's because right. of the impact of the federal government uh, on the school district. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it also sometimes is, 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 uh, comes to, to school systems, although less so these days because of a large military base or something. Okay. The property itself is not taxed because it's federal property, mm-hmm. but it's still within the, the school district. And so this, the federal government provides some amount of money to compensate the school district for that. My guess is that more likely in the Mammoth area is there's also federal forest funds where, where, the, where the federal government, because if there were private owners of that property who profited from the sales of timber, then they would be taxed and the property would be taxed to the, for the schools. But because the federal government owns it and in fact may make some money with logging companies who do the logging, they then essentially, if you will, in lieu of taxes, make some payment to the to the school districts. Oh, interesting. So, and it's 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 more common in the West, where we have these very large um, national forests, and much less common uh, in the Midwest or the East, where where there are many, many, many fewer of these large forests, and and fewer of them uh, as part of national forests, but have have different sorts of uh, of designations. Okay. And then let's, we're kind of working out here, uh, out to satellite area where we can look back at the earth. Uh, But so across California, how do the districts compare with what you've described are pretty much, it's pretty much all the funding per student equivalent across the state, or are there still differences amongst the districts? I guess the answer to that is depends on how you measure it. Okay. We'll go. We'll go back. We'll add one more term that 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 people who've lived in California for a long time may or may not have heard, particularly if they thought about school finance. And that term is Serrano. Mm-hmm. And, and Serrano was a lawsuit. It was Serrano v. Priest. It was filed in 1968, and through a long series of court rulings, it required that the state had to substantially eliminate 
wealth-based disparities in school district revenues. So, so in other words, every district should have roughly the same access to, rev- to, to, to revenues. Mm-hmm. And over time, through a series of things, largely sped up by Proposition 13, we've achieved pretty much compliance with Serrano in terms of the, the wealth of a school district has relatively little to do with the amount of money per pupil a school district would receive. So the short an- so part of the answer to your question is, yes, we've largely eliminated those spending differences. On the other hand, there's wide recognition in, in education that some children come to school with greater needs than others. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly the men who I mentioned before were English learners, um, foster children, I guess it was three, and, and low-income children. Mm-hmm. So the California model provides more resources for school districts that have concentrations of those children. So they'll get more per student when they have, um, you know, larger numbers of children who qualify for those supplemental funds. Mm-hmm. And that's going to vary because the California uh, model assumes that when the concentration gets over 55%, even more money is needed. It's, it's not clear to me there's a whole lot of research that says that actually is the case, but that's been the model that was put in place in California. And that's how we've worked for about the last decade. So the amount of money a school district gets per pupil will vary. Hopefully it's based on the characteristics of the students, not on the characteristics of the different districts, property wealth. Right. So there's yeah. a difference. And then there also, you know, federal money has similar effects. It's generally the biggest federal programs are um, Title I, which again provides money for children from low-income families, and, and, and the school lunch program, which again feeds children from low-income families. So districts that have more low-income children will receive a lot of federal money. That's, if you will, outside the system we talked about of, of county-based Proposition 13-driven property taxes and then state revenues that compensate for the differences to bring everybody up to the funding level established by the local control funding formula. Okay. That's, that's again, that's really helpful. Yes. So the characteristics of the student population does affect the amount of money that the district would get, but presumably only in a good way, right? You're not going to get less money. You're not going to somehow be penalized by your student population it would just be recognized that they have special needs, and so you'd get more money. That's supposed to be the That's idea. Okay. And, and if we're talking about children with disabilities who, who qualify for special education, that's kind of a whole separate funding formula that provides money. And again, gotcha. it's based on, on those children's needs um, as well. Okay. All right. So to zoom out uh, again here. Now, is this situation in California similar to other states? On a very general level, absolutely yes. Um, all state funding formulas in one way, shape, or form find ways to equalize differences in school districts' ability to raise property taxes and then compensate for the difference. There's only a couple of real general formulas, and they, they work in the same way. Um, and, and states vary in the degree to which they equalize school district spending and the degree to which they allow school districts to raise money beyond this system. In California, because Proposition 13 limits property taxes, with a few minor exceptions, um, school districts really can't raise additional property taxes. There are two exceptions to that, but, but generally they can't. And so the local control funding formula is the amount of money that a uh, you know this, this school district has for its first general revenue. In other states, school districts are allowed to, with voter approval, typically 
raise additional money. And it just varies by state and what the rules are and whether the state helps if they make additional choices or not, or at some point, whether they're just on their own to raise that additional money. And, and so each of the 50 states is a little different and the consequences of that on per pupil spending would obviously vary by district as well. Okay, sorry. So now I have to zoom back in again and uh, go off in a slight tangent here. So we fairly frequently in my area get school bond propositions that get put on the ballot, and they tend to be very popular. There was one recently for the Poway School District, which was quite enormous. And I have sort of heard through the grapevine that that did affect people's property tax out there. It is that right? Do I have that straight or am I? Am no, I that's correct. Bond measures are so, so bond measures are different than are for building schools or repairing schools. And oh. it's fundamentally different than the day-to-day operations of a school. Okay. And so they are with the proper approval levels, which are either a supermajority of two thirds, or if you meet certain other kind of requirements and oversights, I think you can do it with um, 55% uh, mm-hmm. positive vote the way to think about it is you buy your, the things that you use to live every day, gas for your car, car payments, food, um, your mortgage, all those sorts of things come out of your income. But when you bought your house, you didn't have enough money to just write a check for your house. At least most people. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. (laughs) Nor did I. Um, School districts generally can't just write a check to build a new school. So instead, they do the same thing. They borrow money, and they do it through bonding. They, they get voter approval. They pass a bond measure. They then sell the bonds for the amount of money to build a school. And then the property tax that guarantees repayment on the bonds. So because they're um, you know, municipal bonds, if you will, they're federally, and, and I think in, in most cases, California, and if there's local property taxes, local income taxes, they're income tax uh free, you don't pay income tax on them. And they general, and because they're very secure, they're based on a guarantee of the property tax ability of the, of the school district, they have relatively low interest rates, but they're attractive to investors because you don't pay tax on the earnings. So they sell bonds that are relatively low rate most of the time, and then use the proceeds from the bond to build a school and pay it off over 20 years, just like buying a house. And is that done Typically by county, then it's done by school district. Okay. School districts often have limits on the capacity that they're allowed to to levy bonds. And in California, because Prop 13 limited things for a while, and because different districts have very different abilities to again, if you wanted to build a school that costs thirty million dollars, mm-hmm. Beverly Hills would need a lower tax rate than Compton. And and while the state doesn't equalize those, it does provide some financial aid to help build schools. And how well that's equalized, I honestly don't know. It, it, in the past, it was more on first come, first serve basis. But, but that was also when you could, for several years, you couldn't raise money for anything uh, on, through property taxes. And then over time, we've allowed jurisdictions to, to levy bonds, uh, to levy um, what's called a, a parcel tax. That is, mm. you know, on the square footage of, of the property rather than on the value of the property. Mm. And, and then uh, you may have heard, if you live in San Diego, of Mellow Roost districts. Oh, yes, definitely. And, mm-hmm. and, and those are a, a way to, to, to essentially get a developer who owns a large piece of property to vote to tax all of that property at a, at, at a rate to provide resources for the schools. And then um, 
when you buy it, you, a piece of property from them, you've got that tax that you pay on that that parcel uh, that 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 the developer essentially voted to pay the taxes on. In some cases, now local communities actually create mellow roost districts and 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 increase their own taxes to to, to provide for parks or for schools or something like that. So oh, there's a few ways around Proposition 13, and of course, the biggest issue is it's Proposition 15 on the California ballot uh, this, this November. year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Currently, residential property is sold far more often than business and commercial property. Yeah. And so the result is, if you will, the, 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 the distribution of assessed value has shifted from business and commercial property to residential property, and residential property pays a larger share of the property taxes than it did in 1979 after Proposition 13 passed. Um, and so Proposition 15 would separate the two, and under certain conditions, the business and commercial property would be taxed at something closer to its market value or its actual value, rather than the assessed value that, that could be based on a on a forty year old number. Okay, and then just to tick this box here, our schools here in my area, you know, have big drives, big contribution drives to raise money for the schools. Uh, often with various associations affiliated with those that often end up, you know, school politics that often end up to be kind of controversial. But I'm assuming that whatever money goes into that kind of fundraising stays with the school. Is that is that correct? Or are there limitations to that? Uh, it, what I'll say is it certainly stays in the school district. Okay. There have been some school districts that have tried to redistribute the money across the school district. Mm-hmm. So that schools with more lower income people can share in what higher income people uh, contribute. Mm-hmm. Those have typically been very unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I have to explain why. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and so they they, they they lead to to interesting and different kinds of behavior. But the money stays definitely in the district, and to my knowledge, almost always at the school where it's raised. Uh-huh. It's a relatively small percentage of the total amount of money that's available to school districts overall or to schools overall in a few districts in, in, in very well-to-do areas. It sometimes represents a very large share of money. Oh, I see. Interesting. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk more about these operating costs and where that money gets spent. So I'm was going to propose an example where the school district had $5,000 per student. It sounds like maybe I should make that more like $10,000 per student. What I would say is, is California spends on average about sixteen thousand dollars per student. Whoa! Probably about well, about ten thousand, twelve thousand of that probably comes through that local control funding formula. There's federal money. There's the money that's spent for capital uh, improvements. There's money spent on food services. There are a whole lot of programs that are. Uh, there's special education. So there's a whole lot of money that's not in sort of the general fund. Okay. But if we if we talk about the the general fund, which is sort of the main operating budget of the school district. Spending patterns are very similar um, across school districts, uh, not only in California, uh, across the country. When I did my dissertation in the mid-1980s, we had had a school school reform bill. It was called Senate Bill 813 for everybody in your audience who's as old as me. (laughs) And it it, it was essentially trade more money for, for education reforms which could be summarized as put more money in instruction. So I looked at the percentage of a budget that went to instruction defined fairly narrowly as essentially the teachers and the cost of teachers and, and left it largely at that. You know, we left instructional support to, to, to be 
all the other things that, you know, books and things like that that went in there. Um, and it was about 60% of a school district's budget. And that figure went up to about 63% um, immediately after proposition, after Senate Bill 813 passed. And within about four years, had gone back to about 60%. Okay. Uh, in fact, what I then found when I became a professor at USC, and I did a, a large national study where we had a group of school superintendents come in and, you know, to, to, to use easy numbers that I can do the math on quickly. Right. <laughs> we had a superintendent from California who in those days, and so we're talking 30 years ago, said, yeah, I spend $5,000 a year per pupil and I spend 60% of that or $3,000 per year um, on, on instruction. Okay. And next to him at, at breakfast was a superintendent from New Jersey who said, well, I spend $10,000 a year per pupil, and 6,000 of that is for, for instruction. Again, 60%. Yeah. So we went out and looked at that across some big federal data sets, and what we found was that the when you look at the percentage of resources going to different categories, it was consistent, rock solid, and it hasn't changed over the years. Isn't that interesting? 60% of school district money goes to instruction, give or take a little. Another seven or eight percent goes to instructional support. Uh, another uh, six or seven percent goes to school leadership, school site leadership. Four or five percent goes to school district administration. Four or five percent goes to transportation. Five percent to food services. Uh, nine or ten percent to maintenance and operations. And those numbers are just kind of like rock solid. If, if superintendent tells me his budget, I know how he spends it pretty quickly. Uh, and it's it's virtually always the same. Um, but then when you think about it, what we do in schools is, is I don't want to say what individual teachers do in classrooms is the same because that would be comp- patently not true. But the way we structure schools so those teachers could be in classrooms to do that teaching looks very similar from school district to school district. There is a classroom with some number of children and a teacher supported by a series of maybe there's some counselors and maybe there's some aides and there's a a principal, maybe some assistant principals. There's a district office with people who work on curriculum, who work on keeping schools clean. And and the same things generally happen. So it's, it's maybe not that big a surprise that they generally have the same spending patterns. Well, I guess it surprises me because I was under the impression and this is why I'm so glad to have you on the show because you can actually tell us what the truth is. I was under the impression that teachers were paid quite differently depending on what district they worked in. But if what you're telling me is we've essentially got the same cost per student or funding per student, I should say, then is that not true that teachers are paid differently in different districts? So teacher salary schedules, which if you will, is a matrix of how much they would be paid at their base salary based on their education and their experience. They do vary from district to district. Um, in California, they're largely, they're almost all negotiated between a, a teacher bargaining unit um, and, and the school district. But then the other thing that drives sort of the school district's budget for teachers is the composition of those teachers. If your faculty is composed heavily of teachers with a lot of experience and education, you pay more per teacher, that's your teacher, and your average teacher salary is much higher than if your district has a lot of teachers who are um, younger, less experienced, and have not had the opportunity to, to participate in as many additional education programs since they earned their teaching credential. And so depending on the composition of the teachers, you can see some differences. Um, and there are differences in the amount of money that school districts uh, pay for, for teachers, but then you'll also see variations in class sizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's a whole series of variables that affect 
how you think about what you pay your teachers, how large your classes are, how many additional support personnel work in the district and what they do. But uh, the, the proportions tend to be quite consistent across school districts. They may look different, but they're, 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 they're very similar. So even if you have a district where you tend to have older, more experienced, better educated teachers, and so they individually are making more than a different district, it's just not making up a big enough difference to move your 60%. Is that, is that the right way to think about that? It, it generally would be around 60%. It, it could be a little higher in a district that's, that's very heavily weighted toward uh, uh, more senior teachers, but you also may find larger class sizes. You also may find fewer counselors or fewer instructional coaches. Uh, you may also find that, you know, th- those sort of get buried into the instructional support and instruction categories. Uh, so it just, each district as a set, it makes its own set of choices and trade-offs based on how it views the best way to, to educate children within the resources that are available to it. But it's just not moving that 60% much is what you're saying. No, it's been pretty consistent points, for 30 but... years. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Okay, now here's the million-dollar question for you. When we think about adequate funding for education, or I should say when we think about education and how it works, should we focus on money as a stand-in for quality, or is that kind of a red herring? (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> well, money Deep is breath. not a red money is not a red herring money is what we spend for our schools so it's okay. crucial okay that said the research on does money matter has yet to identify what i think the the, the biggest critics of of, of money matters sort of liter- uh, would say is we haven't found a systematic relationship between money and um and, and student outcomes just okay. assume what you mean by better schools mean students do better. And it's, it's tricky because there are so many variables in a school. There are, in a California classroom, maybe 25 to 30 children with a teacher, mm-hmm. all of whom have good days and bad days. So as we're learning uh, in, in our COVID uh, yeah, um, right. operating schools, some, there, are, there are examples of children who are just soaring like, like eagles who never would have before because mm. this is working for them there's probably more children who are struggling because they don't have access to the internet or because online learning is just harder for them. You know, we've all adjusted in, in our own ways. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tricky to, to, to think through how that, how money matters. The, the, the bigger question that has been asked is, is how much money do we need? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are four models that sort of try to estimate that. And it's, it's hard to do again, because these are big complicated things and we're, we're producing educated children. We're not, you know, taking, some sort of physical input and turning it into some kind of physical output, right? We're talking yeah, about people, people who are all different and we're educating them with people who are all different. So it's not like we can build six machines to turn it out. If we have six teachers, they're all different. Mm-hmm. And let me just state my bias up front. One of these four models is a model you mentioned in the introduction, the evidence-based <laughs> model, which I helped develop. Okay. Um, and so I, I obviously like it the best. Mm-hmm. One model looks at um, sort of state standards, finds districts, or schools that have met those state standards, looks at what they cost and says, that's what we spend. The problem is often districts in poor areas spend more than that and don't do as well. So it's, it's, it's tricky to figure out what you do in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. There's another one that's highly mathematical. It uses a lot of fancy uh, econometrics to, to try to estimate 
how money matters and, and how much of it you need to, to achieve a certain test score. I mean, it's, it's growing in popularity in some places. Um, the problem with both of those models is they don't give you any idea of sort of what would you do with the money? Because I would argue that it's not so much how much money you have, it's what you do with it, which means what are teachers doing every day in the classroom and how are they being supported? There's two other models. One's called professional judgment. And as you can imagine, you bring together a group of education professionals, first-rate teachers, first-rate school leaders, say, all right, to meet these state standards, what would a school look like? Once you know what they think a school looks like, how many teachers, how many of everything else, you figure out what that costs. Uh, The evidence-based model is very similar to that we rely initially on what education research says about what works in schools. And then we build a model of a school and cost that out. The professional judgment people bring evidence to the professional panels. We often take our evidence-based model to panels and ask them what they think about those things. And, And the two models often come fairly close in terms of what they estimate costs would be. Does that guarantee a certain outcome? Sadly, no. Um, and and I'm kind of of the view that what's more, because both the evidence-based model in particular mostly allocates personnel and then figures out what they cost. Yeah. So if we say you need in a school of 400, te- 400 students, you need 20 teachers. And I'm doing things I can do with math, not because yeah. of any sense of reality. Okay. okay. <laughs> and we have... We have a school in California where the average teacher salary is $65,000 a year. And we have a school in South Dakota where the average teacher salary is $38,000 a year. Obviously, the cost of those 20 teachers is vastly different. Yeah. Okay. And if we have exactly the same amount of money for each of those schools, then classes are going to be about twice as big in California mm-hmm. because we're paying teachers almost twice as much. So, so those are the, the kinds of, of, of differences. But I think once the model is mostly about people, and making sure those people are very well trained and, and know how to teach and help children. But at the end of the day, we pay for it and we buy everything they need with money. So money always has to be factored into it. So it's, it's not a red herring, but I like to focus more on the people who are there and, and a little less on the money at the first cut. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of out there alone on that in the school finance literature. Everybody else looks at money. Yeah. So. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm working on them. I'm working on them. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So it's kind of a crude tool, you might say, looking at, at money as a stand-in for, for quality. There are a lot more subtleties to, to it. Is you have to really know, A, what the money is able to buy because it buys different things in different places. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, for example, you can buy a perfectly good four-bedroom, 2,200-square-foot house in Cheyenne, Wyoming for a whole lot less than you can in La Jolla. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the views no, aren't as right. good either, but you know, it's not only the view. <laughs> and it's it's the, the old real estate adage, it's location, location, location. Uh-huh. So how much do you have to pay a teacher to teach in La Jolla compared to teach in Cheyenne when their mortgage is going to be so very different? Mm-hmm. Do you see any big changes on the horizon in school financing? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the short answer is... No, I think the challenges we face right now lead to places where we can think about it. California's biggest challenge is our state tax revenues are very sensitive to the economy. Mm. So as the economy appears to be in trouble and tax revenues are going to be very down, there'll be less money for schools. My property bet tax bill is probably not going to change very much. Um, I'm sure my, I've lived in my house for 30 years. So my assessed value is, you know, 
they're not uh, making a challenge that my assessed value is too high for what my house is currently worth seems unlikely, mm-hmm. especially since the real estate market doesn't seem to be uh, crashing yet, if hopefully it won't. And so property taxes may remain relatively high if people can pay them, uh, right. but state revenues are likely to, 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 to go down like they did um, in the Great Recession in 2008. Yeah. And that'll make it hard for the state to meet its commitments. I mean, so far it looks like they've found enough resources to hold schools mostly okay for the current 2021 school year. Okay. We really don't know what revenues, I mean, there are projections of revenues for the state that are, are fairly dire that would lead to pretty dra- dramatic reductions in, 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 in school uh, uh, revenues. So we'll, we'll see. So, so I don't know what kind of changes that'll lead to um, nationally. There's always conversations about can, because we spend vastly different amounts per pupil across states, should we use federal money to equalize some of those differences? Mm-hmm. At the moment, that's not going to happen with the federal government. It's, it's running substantial deficits. And, and whenever it, it gets closer to being in balance or when it was in balance, uh, decisions have been made to, to cut taxes rather than to, to, to look for other places to invest. And, and so those decisions also affect uh, uh, how we do things. So it's, 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 I would say the federal role will always be probably pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great vast number of people who feel it should be. So, so that's, that's as appropriate states make different sets of decisions, but it's still, you know, you, you need state support and local property taxes and you need, you know, most states have some combination of property income and sales taxes to largely support their schools and states that are missing one of those, if you will, one of the legs of that three-legged stool, they, they often have more trouble uh, um, finding ways to finance their schools and, and New Hampshire, which has neither a state income or sales tax, has more trouble yet. Interesting. But uh, that that's that's not California, which is, I think, our focus today, right? Yeah, in part. So can you comment on teacher shortages? Is that a real thing? And what are you seeing at the USC School of Ed? So teacher shortages are, I'm not an expert in this area and there are people who know far more than me. And so if somebody like Dan Goldhaber were to tell you I'm wrong, I probably am. There have consistently been shortages of teachers in special education and in areas like math and science. Okay. Beyond that, teacher shortages tend to be more regionalized and have to do with, with local economic conditions, local, uh, local salaries. Uh, I've been doing some work in Wyoming, which is not exactly a great example for California, but it, in some ways it is. Oh, interesting. And, and in, in areas where, where in the past, in the, in the last decade, the, the mineral extraction business has been very, 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 very successful and, and, and growing. Um, for, for example, in Southwest Wyoming, it's hard to attract teachers and it's hard to keep teachers because often they can make more money in the mineral extraction business. Now, as that oh. business seems to be, <laughs> wow. well, I mean, sure. people, people yeah, that's the reality. Yep. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are examples in South Texas of needing bilingual teachers and school districts going north to the big 10 schools and recruiting young people who have bilingual certificates and they last a year or two and they go back home. Mm-hmm. Um, Some districts, when they've been able to, and and this isn't always possible, have raised or provided an additional payment for bilingual teachers, have often not needed to recruit at all. There are bilingual teachers in their school district Mm -hmm. who, for a little extra pay, are more than happy to do it again, but it's additional work compared to not being a bilingual teacher, and so they choose to, to move out of that. So there, there, there may be, it may be that part of what we need is to, to have a more sophisticated uh, tool for, for salaries and, and differentiating salaries more than we do. That's a very long, very challenging task. 
uh, the bargaining units, the NEA, the AFT, um, and their local um, units tend to like the salary schedules and the consistent sorts of salaries that, that, that they provide. So it's, it's a hard thing to kind of change. So I would say teacher shortages are, are, are regional and they vary and they vary by, by topic. Um, and there are people who know far more and can give you far more sophisticated answers than I just did. Mm-hmm. Good. No, that's really helpful. I hear tell again, you know, I'm glad you're here to, to tell us the reality of things. So I'd hear about bad school districts, right, in, uh, in quote marks, and that bad school districts would have trouble uh, recruiting teachers. What advice would you have for people who are looking for work or considering becoming a teacher? Like, how would they find a, a school or a principal or a district that they like? So it's my understanding that, that the research largely says that almost all teachers end up working their entire career within about a 50-mile radius of where they did their uh, graduate teaching, uh, uh, got their teaching credential. Isn't that interesting? So, so, but now if you think about, well, think about San Diego State. You're in San Diego. If you go 50 miles from San Diego State, there are a lot of school districts. Yeah. If you like the, the, the desert lifestyle or you like the beach lifestyle or you choose to live close to the border because you have family in Mexico or you really like to go to Orange County every weekend, within 50 miles of San Diego State, you can... F- you can find something that'll work for you in, in, in a school district. Um, so, so I'm not sure how, how lifestyles affect that or not, or, or, or how people make choices. Uh, at one time, I mean, these days, you know, organizations like uh, Teach for America, which recruit out of the Ivy League schools and some of the highest quality universities, have placed students, you know, in lots and lots of, of urban school districts. And there was a great intensity in students wanting to go teach in challenging areas. You know, teach for America, many of their graduates go on to other things relatively quickly, which may or may not be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Young people generally change jobs many, many times in, in their early careers. So, so why would we think people who go into teaching would be different? Uh-huh. Um, so, so, you know, um, identifying a school district works for you. The problem is, is, of course, leadership turns over and changes as well. And once you've been in a school district for, for generally two or three years and you have some protections, um, there's some advantages to staying. The other thing I would add, an important thing to say is teaching is actually, I think, a very good job. Uh, teacher salaries are not all that bad if you have a two-income household, which we all are these days. Mm. And, and you have two people at the top of the salary schedule in Los Angeles Unified, which number approaches, I think, $90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. If your household income is $180,000 a year, it's the top 10% of in household incomes in the country. Mm-hmm. You're 10%er at that. You have a fairly secure job if you have enough seniority to be making that salary. Mm-hmm. And so far, the retirement benefits tend to be quite good. So, so the other thing to think about is, and young people don't do this as well as people who are my age. What are the benefits in terms of retirement and, and what happens after I teach for 30 years and, and my take-home income essentially looks very similar to what I was taking home to teach to not teach? And, and what are my options? You know, if I start teaching at the age of, of 25 at 55, I might have a very nice pension that I can live on and do other things. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the lifetime earnings of a teacher, they're, they're really quite good. And so then it becomes really finding, a you know, is it important where you live? Is it important to the culture of a school? And then it becomes, what's the school district's leadership like? What are the principals like? And it's, it's really a matter of applying for jobs and, 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 and getting an interview and, and then deciding if that's what you like or not. And it, it's hard to know because there's a lot of teachers in this country and they have lots of different views of, of what makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Are there any misunderstandings out there amongst the citizens or parents about school financing that you would like to correct? <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> you know, I think generally speaking, people have relatively little under understanding of, 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 of school finance or, or how schools are financed. I think as, as, as a rule, they probably think we spend too much on schools. And if you ask them how much we spend, it'd probably be less than we actually spend. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like me. There's, there's that sort of challenge in, in, in thinking that through. You remember, um, Secretary uh, Bill Bennett, Secretary of Education in, I want to say the Bush administration, the Reagan administration, I'm sorry, you know, talked about the administrative blob. I'm not quite sure what that administrative blob is, but if you're thinking about central office school district administration, it's like four or 5% of a district's budget. Yeah, I heard that when you said that, yep. And, and it's a smaller percentage in the biggest districts like San Diego and Los Angeles. And, and then you have to remember that in San Diego, the, that district's central office is responsible for 120,000 individual children and their well-being and their safety every day. And then it's got, I'm not sure how many employees the, the San Diego School District has, but, but there's a lot of people who work there. I mean, half of them are teachers, but there's a few administrators and there's a lot of secretaries, clerks, school bus drivers, custodians, maintenance workers, uh, gardeners, um, painters, probably, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who work in the school system. Uh, so, so that, and it has a big effect on, on a local economy. So, so I think you have to think fairly broadly about not only how much we spend, but what's the impact of that school district on your own local economy, mm-hmm. you get outside of big cities and in most smaller towns in the United States, uh, the largest employer is the K-12 school district. Yeah. That's that would be true in Mammoth Lakes. The school district Absolutely. is a is a huge employer. Yeah, for sure. Next to the hospital. Yeah, and it, the best example I always had was years and years and years ago. I, I did some work in a place called Cheney, Washington, which is just outside of Spokane. And they had at the time they had a very large Nabisco cookie plant, and they had um, Eastern Washington State University. And even still, the Cheney School District was the largest employer in town. Mm-hmm. So it's, they're, they're very large organizations uh, and they have big impacts. So I think that's probably the biggest misunderstanding and, and that had nothing to do with students learning. But what's really critical is the school districts need to be focused laser tight every day on how all students learn what they need to know. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. And that's hard to do. Well, Larry, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. I, I learned a lot, and I know I'll learn more when I go back through and listen to this again. But before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience, how they could follow your work or any resources you'd like to direct them to? Well, the the, the two best places to, to follow the, the work I do are, are, I guess, my two websites. And, and one is at the USC School of Education uh, website. It's... Uh, www.usc.edu slash Rossier, R-O-S-S-I-E-R. And the other one where it probably looks a little more at, at the evidence-based model that, that I've worked on is to go to my own personal website, which is uh, www.picusodden, one word, P-I-C-U-S-O-D-D-E-N.com. And the, those show between them kind of get a sense for, for you'd have to search in the USC site for, for me, but it's fairly easy to do. And that will um, give you a sense of uh, what I do. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time and your, 
and the work that you do and for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed speaking with you. It's been uh, fun to kind of think of all these issues in this way. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.